Welcome to Writer Writer Pants on Fire, where authors talk about things that never happened to people who don't exist. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis. You can check out my books and social media at mindymcginnis.com and visit the Writer Writer Pants on Fire blog at writerwriterpantsonfire.blogspot.com. I'm looking for support in 2018 to keep the show going and have started a GoFundMe. If the show has been of any help to you on your writing journey, or if you just enjoy listening, please consider donating so that I can continue airing. Visit GoFundMe.com and search for Writer Writer Pants on Fire to contribute. Today's guest is Rachel Alpine, author of both YA and middle grade titles, as well as being a full-time English teacher, wife, and mom. Rachel joined me today to talk about the importance of knowing what you want in an agent and what questions to ask before you begin querying and how to address content in your older titles for your middle grade readers. Born to privilege, trained for command, destined for danger. Master and Commander meets Sarah J. Moss in a seafaring adventure of duty, love, magic, and a princess's quest to protect her kingdom on her own terms. Air and Ash, an addicting new YA fantasy adventure by Alex Lydell. Aspiring writers are always interested to hear about the agent hunt from established authors. So tell us about your agent and how you landed her. My story about my agent's kind of a crazy one, and it's probably not one that I would recommend other people follow my path. I'm represented by Natalie Lacoso from the Bradford Agency, and she's actually my third agent. Probably around 2010, 2011, I started to send out queries after I finished the draft of Canaries. I sent out, I'd say maybe around 40 query letters. And I started to get like requests for fulls and partials. Then I got a call from an agent that wanted to talk about representing my book. I got this offer of representation and I told other agents about it too and gave them a two-week window and if you can get back to me if you're interested. Again, this is where there's just things that I think I did along the way where I was kind of a newbie and I just didn't really understand what I wanted in an agent or how to find the right agent for me. And so I ended up signing with an agent that offered representation, but there were still other agents that were still like reading. Two of them actually asked for more time, but I was just ready to sign. So I signed with my first agent and she was a brand new agent at her agency. And so she hadn't made any sales before. We clicked and I liked her and we went out on submissions and we kept getting rejections back, but we would get feedback with them and all the feedback kind of looked the same. And I think that's where I was starting to think about going back and revising. And again, I just never voiced my opinion about anything. Mm -hmm. And so we sent out submissions until ultimately she pretty much exhausted anybody that you can send submissions to and the book hadn't sold. The way that I signed that contract is that I had a year with her and then either of us could decide after each year if we wanted to terminate the contract. At that point, she didn't know where to take the book, who to query it to anymore. And I just felt like at the time, maybe we weren't the right fit for each other. Instead of renewing the contract for another year, I terminated it and decided to take my book out on submission by myself. And so what I did is I actually looked at all the letters that we had gotten from editors and made the changes. Again, most of their suggestions were all the same. 
And then I submitted the book to some mid-level publishing houses within a month selling it to Medallion Media Press. But I did know that I didn't want to go into a contract without an agent. And I ended up querying an agent I really liked who was not taking clients on at the time, but referred me to somebody else in the agency, kind of going headfirst into it, not really thinking about what I wanted in an agent. The agent did an awesome job getting me an advance that was probably around like eight or 900 times more than what I was being offered on my own, going through clauses in the contract and things like that I never would have thought of. So for that, this agent was perfect. But then when it came time to write my next book, the agent just didn't really seem enthused about my next idea or the idea after that. And it was taking a long time to hear back and to get feedback. And I just, again, it was one of those gut things where I didn't feel like we clicked. So I terminated that contract too. I think that's when I really did my work. Thought about what I wanted in an agent. This time around, when I got the call for representation, I had a whole list of questions to ask, which I didn't before. So that's how I found Natalie. I think we've been together for about four years, and she's sold five of my books so far. She is excited about my work and really likes what I'm doing. And I think that's what I needed, like that idea that you almost need it cheerleader and somebody that's behind what you're doing and just really loves what you're doing. And I think in the beginning, I, I just like the idea of an agent. And I wasn't looking for the perfect agent for me. I think it's an excellent story, though. And I've interviewed multiple authors for the podcast who have been through two, three, four agents. I think this is exactly the kind of information that is important to get out there for aspiring writers. I totally get that inclination to be like, oh my gosh, someone wants to sign me. I'm going to do it, right? I'm so excited. I got an offer. I always equate that when I'm talking to aspiring writers. I always say, I want you to imagine the first person that asked you to marry them and that you said yes to that person. Mm -hmm. The vast majority of the time, they're like, oh my God. And I'm like, (laughs) yeah, see, you got to wait. You got to play the field a little bit. You have to have that connection. Don't sign with an agent just because they are in fact an agent. People will tell you often, and it is true, that no agent is better than a bad one. And you're not necessarily that you had bad agents, but you had agents that you weren't connecting with. Yeah, they just weren't the right fit with me. And I think that the marriage analogy is perfect. Past boyfriends or people I rushed in relationships with, and I was like, whoa, what was I thinking? But now they're happily married with other people. They are the perfect fit for somebody else. But these agents that I had first weren't just the fit for me. They weren't what I was looking for. And I think I was a little bit starry-eyed with that idea of just signing with an agent. Exactly. Just like your first marriage proposal makes you go, oh my God, someone wants to marry me. (laughs) But it might come in fourth grade. So you got to think it through. And I love stories like that that aren't a fairy tale. I signed with my first agent. I became a New York Times bestselling author and we are best friends. That is so rare. I am still with the original agent that I signed with, but the vast majority of authors that I know are not. That by no means is an indication of a bad agent or a bad writer. It's not the best relationship. So those are definitely things to consider when you are on that query journey. I was very fearful about not renewing my contracts. If you're working with somebody and it's not working out, it's probably not ever going to work out. It it takes quite a bit of courage to Mm -hmm. say, this is my agent and I'm so glad I have one, but I'm going to break up with her or him. 
Oh, I've been trying to jam my foot in this door for so long. Now I'm taking it back out. Like it can feel that way, mm-hmm. but it's mm-hmm. still the right choice. If you have reservations about your agent, you need to have conversations with that agent and take steps if necessary. And it's, I'm sure, yeah. terrifying. Let's talk about Canary, which was your first novel. It debuted in 2013. It's about sexual misbehavior on the part of a successful boys basketball team being overlooked by adults. Your second YA novel, which just came out recently, Avoid the Size of the World, is about the disappearance of an older sister and the main character's guilt that her own actions may have played a part in it. So in addition to those, you have four different middle grade novels with the Aladdin mix imprint, which are very lighthearted in character. So do you ever worry about your younger readers picking up your YA and being exposed to more difficult topics than they might be ready for? Um, I would have to say, like, the short answer to that is no. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't really worry about that. And I think, like, first of all, that there's a really specific difference between my two types of books. My YA is a lot more dark and kind of gritty, and then I've got the lighthearted middle grade. I never even thought I was going to ever write middle grade. I never really gave it much of a thought. I turned to writing middle grade because Canary left me so drained emotionally that I really wasn't ready to enter into another dark, heavy book. When I write, I listen to music that relates to what I'm writing. So it was a lot of like really depressing, slow songs. I would carry around kind of what my characters are carrying around. My husband always knows if I'm writing middle grade or young adult. I needed to write something more lighthearted there. I just wasn't able to go from a YA book to another YA book, which is how I fell into middle grade. They're so different that it's, In my mind, it's easy for readers to distinguish between the two of them. And kind of like what I said, I don't really worry about who picks up my books because I'm kind of a firm believer that you're drawn to the types of books that you need to read. And I guess as a teacher too, I've never been somebody, and I know your question's not asking about censorship, but Mm -hmm. um, I'm not, like I've never been somebody that told somebody that they couldn't read a book because of their age. I've had parents that have asked me about my young adult books and if they'd be appropriate for their readers. Usually I'll say if it's somebody in middle school, ask them or suggest that they might want to read the book with their child so then they could have a conversation about the stuff in it. I think about like what I read when I was in fourth grade. I was a Stephen King addict, Four Seasons, The Body. Even as a fourth grader, that story of a friendship, that's what I was looking for. But I was almost looking for that as a way to maybe connect or see that things would be okay when I was older, if that makes Mm -hmm. sense. It's very true that readers do tend to read up. They like to read about age ranges older than them. Kids like to read books that are about older kids to prepare themselves and also for, as you're saying, a ray of hope. I mean, that's what I did. So I can't really fault somebody that's younger that wants to pick up one of my books and do the same thing. I would never tell someone that they can't read my books, I tell them exactly what is in it. If they're really young, I will say, well, there are some things in here I don't know if you're ready for yet. If they're old enough for me to say there's sex, there's drugs, there's language, there's murder, allusions to rape, they're old enough for me to use those phrases with them, I will, so that they know this is what the content is. If you're comfortable with that, definitely read it. Now, I do the same thing as you're saying with parents, because my readership, I don't write middle grade, obviously. You can give not a drop to drink to a sixth grader. Mm -hmm. I'm sure there are sixth graders that are perfectly capable of reading the female, the species. I don't know that their parents would agree with that. 
So I would never tell a librarian or a teacher, yes, go ahead and give that to a sixth grader. It's fine. I would mm-hmm. always say, read it and decide. And I say that to the adults. I say it to librarians, teachers, and parents, most especially. If I'm table selling or something of that effect, and I have people asking me, what is most appropriate for my child of this age? I always say it heavily depends on your child. I first recommend not a drop to drink just to introduce your reader to my style and my writing also because of content. But I would say if they're interested in any of these others, that as a parent, I would advise you to read it first. And that serves me doubly because my books also do lean toward an older audience. And a lot of my fans are adults. So I might actually gain doubly because the parent might become a fan and read my books. And at the same time, they appreciate as parents, I'm not just trying to sell a book. I'm saying I want to make sure you're aware there are things in this you may not want your child exposed to. I'm not encouraging censorship. I'm just encouraging not getting my ass fired. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And and that's pretty much what I'm, I'm the same way too. Usually the term I use is that there's high school topics in here, might be some drinking or some sex, that idea of recommending that a parent read it along with the child so that we could have a conversation about it. I've had multiple mothers tell me that they read The Female of the Species before they gave it to their daughter or read it with their daughter, that it just opened up avenues of conversation with their child that they would not normally be comfortable organically starting Mm -hmm. a conversation about date rape with their child. That can be difficult. And the book opened up an avenue for conversation with them about an important topic. And I'm like, that's the best compliment I can ever receive. Exactly. I think that's like one of the best things that we can get out of writing. And I agree with you also in that your covers are very clear. There's a very clear definition between what is your middle grade and what is your YA. I ask because Aspiring writers often wonder about using pen names under different genres or different age groups. And I don't necessarily think that that is the best route because your middle grade readers are going to grow up and be your YA readers. That's what I've always thought about, too. All my books are kind of focused issue of female empowerment. My middle grade does it in a much different younger way, but they still all have the same message. And so I like that idea of my middle grade readers growing with my books and moving from the middle grade to the young adult eventually. But I agree with you. I never gave a thought to using a pen name. I do a lot more school visits and like Skype talks and stuff like that with my middle grade students. And I'll tell them that I write for high school. And then I'll usually say something that when you're a little bit older, you'll want to read. Coming up, how having a teacher's guide made for your book can crack the classroom market and the lack of sports books for younger female readers. From New York Times bestselling author Beth Revis comes the Paper Hearts series. Volume 1 features down-to-earth and practical advice on writing and finding the best practices for you to find and develop your story. Volume 2 covers publishing, from an author who has experience in successful books that were both traditionally and self-published. And volume three is for the author trying to reach a broader market with action plans and practical advice any author can use. Make sure to check out the latest release, The Paper Hearts Workbook, a journal-style writing guide that is designed for you to fill in the pages as you develop your novel. This hands-on guide is useful for someone with an idea 
who is still trying to figure out how to get the story down as well as beneficial for the author who's already written the novel and wants to edit and rewrite for publication. Available now. You're a full-time teacher. You've mentioned that. And you use that knowledge base to draw up teacher study guides for other authors to help promote their titles for use in the classroom. So tell us about that process and how you think being armed with a teacher guide can be useful to an author. Sure. So um, I started writing teaching guides about five years ago. I'd say at this point, I've done upwards of over a hundred of them for authors. Really do love to do it. There's a, a couple different reasons why. I think my first reason is a selfish reason. I get advanced copies of books before they come out. The guides that I create are common core lines. Like any of your listeners don't know what that is. Standards that are set by the nation that most of our curriculum is then fashioned after. So creating the guides for me, again, is kind of a selfish reason, but it helps me become a better teacher because I'm creating these higher level questions that then translate into what I'm doing with my students. And then I think the coolest part is for me, creating these guides for authors is kind of like a masterclass in writing. What most authors want is a whole book discussion questions chapter discussion questions are usually the two most popular packages. I'm reading a book that I'm interested in, not like I'm just reading a book for fun, but I'm sitting and I'm taking notes along the margins. I'm like analyzing it. I'm going deeper into the book. What I'm doing is analyzing the author's writing and looking at how they form the story and how they form the characters, the conflicts and the plot. It gives me the opportunity to kind of dissect the book. I feel like by doing these guides, it actually helps me with my writing too, because I'm looking at how an author creates a book. I think that's a wonderful service. I am one of those people that took you up on that offer. And I have my uh, teacher guides for my first two books, which Mm -hmm. are the only ones that really I think could sail in under the required (laughs) reading parameters, first goals. And I can tell you that teachers perk up. If someone mentions to me that they're a teacher, I always say, here's my card. I have Common Core aligned teacher guides and study questions on my website. You can check those out. And it's just like, boom, they're interested because I just did, or you did, their work for them. Exactly. That's why teachers love them so much. There's now a bank of questions. And again, Common Core aligned questions that the teachers can use. And so these questions address their teaching standards, what they have to do, but it's using a high interest book, something that a lot of teachers are interested in. And I think it's a pretty good marketing tool. I like to think about like the things that we spend our money on marketing wise. And like a lot of the time I feel like we're kind of just throwing a dart like blindly and hoping it hits a dartboard. Writing my own books now, and especially like middle grade books, I see how hard it is to get into a school market. And I think that a teaching guide gets you there, gets you in front of teachers. And if you think about an average teacher, at least a high school or middle school teacher, most of them see over a hundred students a day. So if you can get a teacher's guide into their hands and you think about how many teachers could pick up that guide, that's a lot of readers that you're putting your book in front of. Oh, absolutely. If you can sell a class set of your paperbacks, you just made some money. 
if it catches on, because I see this in the school that I used to work in, the fifth graders know what the sixth graders read. The sixth graders know what the seventh graders read in class. Mm-hmm. And they'll look forward to it if the older kids are talking about it. If one year you sell an entire seventh grade class on not a drop to drink and they get a class set, for one thing, you just sold quite a few books in one blow. Now, those paperbacks, because they're going to buy paperbacks because they're cheaper, are going to go into the hands of however many kids. And the kids are going to talk about it. They're going to get excited about it. That excitement is going to trickle down to the sixth graders. And they're going to be like, oh, that's so cool. I can't wait until I'm in, you know, Miss Alpine's class and I get to read Not a Drop to Drink. And then they go up to that grade. They read it. Those paperbacks get pressed around again. Mm -hmm. Seventh graders are not known for taking good care (laughs) of their things. So if the fifth graders are excited about reading it and the third year rolls around and they're like, oh, I'm so excited. We get to read Not a Drop to Drink this year. And the teacher's like, look, I need to buy 500 more copies to replace because everybody beat the crap out of their paperbacks. Then hooray, it just paid for itself again. And then the other thing too is if you have other books, so with Not a Drop to Drink, if they all love that book, then they want to read the sequel to it. So, Absolutely. you know, and they're going to start asking the librarian for that, asking their parents for it. And it's almost like you're selling double the books there that with the kids. Absolutely. If it goes well, you may be contacted by the teacher or librarian or the local library to come in and do a school visit or a presentation much more exposure. And if the copies of the books that are going to the kids are school copies and they love it, their parents will buy a copy from you for them to have this personalized and signed. It's a win-win. It's it's perfect. I really do think that like the school market is untapped resource for authors. One of the things that I find that works really well too is bookmarks, especially more for middle grade. I take the time to sign all the bookmarks, which like takes forever, but then I reach out and I'll do it on Instagram. I'll look for like hashtags of middle school teachers. And and then I reach out. And one of the big things that I spend my money on is sending bookmarks to those teachers. And again, like signed bookmarks, because I know that you're getting them into the readers, into that hand. The kids are going to carry them around if they're signed. They're going to, you know, not want to throw it away as fast. They're going to ask again the librarians for a copy, a parent for the copies. Again, I'm really big in doing whatever you can to get your book into a school. And as a teacher, I know I come across authors reaching out and doing different things like that to connect with me as a teacher. I give it a second look too. And I'm a big cup of bookmarks that I give to all my students too. So I definitely know the power of using the school market too, to promote your book. Sure. And I back you up entirely on the bookmarks. And also you're totally right on using Twitter. Just last week, I had a teacher tweet that a reluctant reader, a seventh grader read Not a Drop to Drink and said, this book actually makes me want to read. So I sent her a DM immediately and I was like, hi, I saw your tweet. I would love to send a signed bookmark specifically for your reader. And she was just like, oh my gosh, that's incredible. I can't believe that's that's so cool. Thank you so much. It's really going to enhance his reading experience. And he's going to keep reading now because he got backing from the author herself. And that's so cool. Thank you so much. And I'm like, oh, you're welcome. Absolutely. And yes, I did it partially because I want this kid to keep reading and I want to Mm -hmm. encourage that, but also because a teacher just had a personal interaction with me that was highly positive about Mm -hmm. her readers. That's just going to keep on rolling. I want to go back to your middle grade titles for a second. 
specifically one of them, you throw like a girl, is about female athletes. I've talked before on this podcast about how I feel this is a severely underrepresented group in YA literature. As a librarian, I can name on one hand the number of titles that focus on female athletes, whereas I need both hands to name the number of male authors who strictly write sports books for boys. So why do you think this dichotomy exists, and how do we go about changing that? It's funny that you ask that because I have to admit that I really never realized that there weren't that many books out there for female athletes, which is kind of crazy now that I think about it. But um, Mm -hmm. I wrote You Throw Like a Girl because it was a story that I wanted to see out there. It was a story that I was interested in. Almost as soon as the deal was announced, I started to see tweets and blog posts. I even got emails from librarians, and mostly it was librarians. So you're right. It's those that choose the books and oversee all the books. The excitement over a book about a female athlete, which kind of boggled Mm -hmm. my mind because... Mm -hmm. I just wasn't aware of that, that I'll get emails from readers that read my young adult books. With my middle grade books, I probably get 40 plus letters a week. The cutest thing ever, most of the letters, but almost every single one of them is about, I play softball. You know, I love reading this book. A lot of them will even send me like pictures of them in their softball uniforms. I didn't get mail like this with my first middle grade books. I do think it has to do with writing about a female athlete, which again, was something that I wasn't aware of. And it's admittedly like sad that I wasn't aware of that. With the question about how we change that, maybe that needs to start changing with writers writing more books about female athletes. Because if we're putting the books out, hopefully maybe then the publishing houses are picking those up. It's something that I'm definitely more conscious with now. The middle grade book that I have coming out in the fall is about ballet and football. I took that response I saw with You Throw Like a Girl. And again, I think it's being more aware that there aren't the books out there and trying to write in a way that will change that. And it's not something that you would notice unless you are one of the people, as you say, a librarian that overlooks the entire uh, cadre of YA literature. And I can tell you that I would just scan lists all the time looking for books for my female athletes. Anyone can point to a boy that will only read sports books. Mm -hmm. And that's fine. And that's their choice. And then they are given a huge amount of titles to choose from. There are plenty of girls that only want to read about sports too, and they don't have options. Yeah. I mean, they can read sports books that are written for boys, obviously, but they deserve to see themselves in a book about sports. And this is something that has bothered me for a very long time. My release coming out in January of 19 is about a softball player. And the only reason that even made it is because it also deals with heroin. It was important to me that be something that is not sidelined by the drug use because a lot of her identity is wrapped up in the fact that she's a softball player. And that means something. I grew up as an athlete, played a lot of sports and being an athlete, it's a very strong factor in creating your identity. Mm -hmm. If female athletes are being shown on the shelves, the shelves are telling them female athletes don't read books. So therefore they don't. 
a self-fulfilling prophecy. I never even really thought of it that way, but that's definitely an important way of looking at it. It's my soapbox. (laughs) It's all right. right. We're waiting. uh, Fingers crossed. We're waiting to hear if I sold my next YA. And it's the same. The main character is a soccer player in it. And yeah, you're right. I mean, that's her identity. She has to make choices in the book that will center around soccer or not playing soccer. You know, how does that define her? And I'll add for anyone listening that is looking for good female sports books, if you're a teacher, a librarian, or just a reader that wants to look for good uh, female-focused sports books, there's a publisher from Canada called Orca Books, Orca Like the Whale, O-R-C-A, and they have a wonderful series female-focused sports books that are YA. And I rely on those. I bought a ton of them when I was in the library. And they tend to be aimed towards more reluctant readers, but not necessarily. So if you're looking for female athletic books, check out Orca. Up next, time management and how Rachel maximizes every minute in order to be a full-time teacher, wife and mother, and writer. You're a full-time teacher, as we talked about. You're also a mother of young children and a writer who's regularly producing books. So tell us about time management and how you fit it all in. Um, Well, I always say that my secret is coffee and lots and lots of coffee, uh, basically. The bad news is is that right now I can't drink caffeine because I'm pregnant, so it's definitely been putting a damper on my energy. Well, and being (laughs) pregnant puts a damper on your energy. It does. I'm just starting the second trimester, so I am feeling a lot better. Maybe about four weeks ago, I was working on edits for my next middle grade book, and I would sit at my computer and put headphones on and write. Like Usually, my husband would bring my son home from daycare, so I'd have like an hour to write after work. And I was finding that I would like fall asleep on my keyboard. Like I would wake up on my keyboard and I was like, okay, um, let's chalk this up to pregnancy. And I hope my book's not putting me to sleep here. So there are are a couple afternoons where I literally like beyond coffee, I guess I am the type of person that thrives under pressure. So I do Mm -hmm. feel like the more busy I am, the more productive I am, if that even makes sense. If I have an infinite amount of time, I can find a whole bunch of things to do to waste that time. But if I just have a tidy, finite amount of time, I get stuff done a lot quicker. Right now, it is a struggle. It's it's definitely been more of a struggle since I had my son because I've got now the mom guilt. I try not to take away time from him. Like usually I'll write early in the morning or late at night, but there's times then I have to go away for a few hours on the week and I worry about taking time away from him. Then on the other hand, this is what I've always dreamed of doing. So I also hope that I'm a role model for him too. I don't watch a lot of TV, taken like social media off of my phone because I find I would get sucked into that. I don't know how I always get it done. And a lot of times I feel like I'm juggling a million things at once, but somehow it gets done. Being busy actually makes you more productive. I no longer work in the school. I have been a full-time writer for about two years now. I probably accomplished more when I was working full-time and writing full-time. I have more time to do the things I want to do, like do my hobbies and things like Mm -hmm. that that were certainly neglected when I was working full-time and writing full-time. But I also find that, as you said, I have infinite time. I can do whatever I want. And you know what? 
I do. <laughs> Whereas in the past, if I had 10 minutes, it was like, okay, I got to write for 10 minutes because this is the only time I have today to do this. And I would. Whereas now my whole day is 10 minute increments that I can do whatever I want. And I might not write until 10 o'clock at night. That's usually me too, like during summer vacation where my time gets stretched out so much more. But it is, it's those like 10 minutes. When I do get a little bit of time, I guess I just realize now how precious it is and how I have to get the work done. I remember reading in a book, I believe it was Julia Cameron that did the artist's way. It was like one of her books. And she talks about Mm -hmm. stealing time, stealing minutes of time to write. And she said, you know, it doesn't need to be long. It can be like five minutes, 10 minutes. Any kind of writing is good writing. And for some reason, like, I really like that idea. I had a notebook and I'd write down the minutes that I was able to like steal from different things and be able to like Mm -hmm. add up to writing. When I'm so busy, the time is so precious that when I have it, I've got to use it. When you have a full-time job and you have a child, if you can't just pause that. So the time that I do find I need to use and make worthwhile. I generally enjoy technology. I generally find it useful and helpful. And then there's those big leaps that I'm just not comfortable with. So self-driving cars is one of those things that I'm just (laughs) like, man, that is so freaking scary. I don't want to be in a car that's driving itself. No way. And then I thought, because I am on the road so much, I do so many appearances. Mm-hmm. I was like, but if I was in a self-driving car, I could write while I was going to an appearance. Um, we think alike because, okay, so my husband actually put down a payment for the new Tesla that's coming out. It's like the cheaper version of the fancy Tesla. And then he's like, mm-hmm. you, know, you can get the self-driving car capability with it. And at first I was like, this is stupid. Why are you wasting your money on a car like this? And then suddenly I was like, and I was like, so mm-hmm. I can write in it why I'm driving places and he's like oh my gosh and I was like so could we use it as a tax write-off as an office because technically it's my office and he's like okay just stop stop you're not you're not using this car but I totally I totally get what you mean it's like probably like me I'm like the queen of multitasking and I'm like well wait let's you know let's use this time in the car for something and a lot of the times my husband will drive and I'll have my laptop and I'll use the time in the car to get writing Mm -hmm. down And another thing that I do too is because of social media and the computer and sucking me in and things like that, I actually handwrite all my first drafts of my books in notebooks because Mm. it forces me, one, it's that idea again of like being able to steal time whenever. It keeps me off of the computer and then it stops me from self-editing and going back and changing things. That's probably for me, one of the best time management tools that I found is the handwriting. And I'm always afraid like I'm going to lose the notebook, which, you know, if something like that happens or I spill something on it, then it's going to be a whole different story. It really has helped me get rid of the distractions when I'm able to do that. Okay. Last question. What's up next for you and where can people find you online? So um, the next book I have coming out is in the fall. I don't have a release date yet, but it's my next middle grade book called Friday Night Stage Lights. It's about a girl who dances ballet, loves ballet, and moves to a Texas town that is obsessed with football. The middle school football team keeps getting injured 
on the field. So the coach decides he's going to put the boys into ballet classes, help them um, on the field. And her studio gets invaded by these football players. So it's all, it's again, it's one of, you know, my lighthearted, funny, middle grade types of books. And it's about them, eventually her and the team finding like a mutual ground to respect what each of them are doing and recognize that they're each sports and things like that. So it was, it's a really fun book that I'm excited about. That should be fun. And then we're waiting, like I said, we're waiting to find out about my next young adult book. So hopefully I can dive back awesome. into the world of young adult. And then places to find me. I am on Twitter. My name is Ralpine on that. So R-A-L-P-I-N-E. I think mm-hmm. I use Instagram the most. And so that's just Rachel Alpine, but Rachel's got the E at the end. So R-A-C-H-E-L-E-A-L-P-I-N-E. And then Facebook is Rachel Alpine too. Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire is produced by Mindy McGinnis. Music by Jack Corbel. If you find the podcast or blog helpful, please consider making a donation by visiting GoFundMe.com and searching for Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire. Or visit the blog by going to WriterWriterPantsOnFire.blogspot.com. Click on the podcast tab and then the PayPal button. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis. Join me next week for another episode of Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire, where writers talk about things that never happened to people that don't exist. <laughs>